listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello everyone, it's Fran Barber here and we're focusing this week on Advent 2 and I'm joined by Professor... Reverend Professor Glenn O'Brien, who's a research coordinator at Eva Burroughs College. Thank you for joining By the Well, Glenn. Thanks, Fran. It's great to be here. Uh, Glenn's Uniting Church Minister and an historian who specialises in the history of Methodism and in the life uh, and theology of John Wesley. And Glenn has a new book coming out very shortly called John Wesley's Political World, and we'll put a link to to your new book in our show notes. But it's great that you could join to uh, focus on the Advent readings for this second week, which are Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10, Matthew 3 verses 1 to 12, with a foray into Romans 15, 4 to 13. But before we start, Glenn, can you share with us briefly um, your ministry of preaching and how it's been exercised and whether you preach much now? Yeah, I preached for a 25-year period on a weekly basis as a parish minister, starting in 1986 and finishing up in about 2009. And since that time, I've still continued to preach regularly, but on more of a monthly basis. Schedule. I'm a member at Mernda Uniting, and we don't have a minister in placement there, so I'm a kind of a minister in association. Very so important. I, yeah, help help out a bit, and also continue to accept invitations to preach in different contexts. Yeah, right. Still enjoy enjoy preaching. Yeah, yeah, and I imagine with your speciality, um, you're quite acquainted with John Wesley's sermons, that uh, <laughs> yes. are quite long and uh, yeah, involved. Yes, the the old rule for Methodist preachers was they weren't allowed to preach anything that was contrary to the standard sermons of John Wesley. They could believe anything they wanted, but they couldn't preach anything contrary to the sermons. Yeah, do, do as I say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's um, move into the texts for this week. Beginning with Isaiah 11, this is the week traditionally known as the Peace, the peace Week of Advent, and um, the NRSV has the Peaceable Kingdom as the subheading for, for this passage. Can you just share what you find is quite striking or powerful in this text today? Well, you referred to the Peaceable Kingdom and, of course, that is the name of a series of paintings by the Quaker artist Edward Hicks from around 1830. There are about 60 of these paintings. Right. And they depict uh, you know, the image that we see here in Isaiah of the lion lying down with the lamb, the wolf and the lamb, the mm. leopard with the kid, the calf and the lion, the child leading them and so on. Hicks is writing in the context of a split among the Quakers, but he draws on this biblical imagery in Isaiah to depict ferocious beasts living harmoniously together with mm. the species they would normally predate upon. And then in the background you see the, the two um, splits among the Quakers you know, coming together and being reconciled. So he's showing how reconciliation takes place in the present as a kind of a precursor of mm. the new creation in which non-human species will participate in some way. So that's what fascinates me most about this because I've got an interest in animal theology and the place of animals in the new creation and the way we relate to animals in mm. the present as well. Um, so, you know, a number of later sermons of John Wesley's, he talks about how just as human beings will be elevated to a more divine state of consciousness in the new creation just as humans will be elevated to a more divine status, it may be that animals will be elevated 
to have capacities we normally associate with human beings, such mm. as reason and speech. And he's speculating, but he's clearly including non-human uh, animals in God's purposes for now and for the new creation. So I think this is kind of a almost a post-human yeah. impetus in a passage and like that, this. And that strikes me as a very faithful um, um, reading uh, of Genesis where the creation is good and it's all created out of love and all has an order, all the animals have an order and a relationship to the rest of creation and therefore we do too and our stewardship is, you know, our care yeah. extends to those creatures. Very much so. And it's a very modern conceit that animals don't have souls. I mean, mm. in the Christian tradition, that wasn't really taught in the pre-modern period. Um you get it in sort of Cartesian world where everything is about human reason and human rationality. But if you look at medieval writings, animals had souls. Yeah. An ant had a soul, a bear had a soul, a human had a soul. Now an ant had an ant soul and a human had a human soul. They were different souls but they all had souls and you get the bestiaries that describe the various animals. And so I think, you know, again, you know, in a kind of post-human manner, we're now understanding that Whilst human beings bear the image of God, and we've tended to think of them as the crown of creation, mm. there are some problems with privileging humans mm. in that way in terms of the impact on the environment, on other species and so forth. So a passage like this, I think, gives us a, a fresh vision, another vision of what could be, mm. and uh, all eschatological passages of the Scriptures, I think, you know, one of the values of those passages is that they ask us to think about now, how do we live now? So, for example, if the body is going to be resurrected, then what we do with the body matters because it's going to participate yes. in the new creation. So if animals are going to participate in the new creation, how we relate to them now as God's fellow creatures, as other creatures, matters. Yeah, yeah. I'm also struck by this passage, like the beautiful poetic language of it, but also what's implied um, in our life is that the fear and the threat that, that would pertain if these things were to happen now. So that it's pointing to, I guess, um, that aspect of the Advent season we sometimes overshadow, which is, um, I suppose, the waiting, not the waiting, the, the fact that we live in a broken world um, of evil and suffering and so on. And that is alluded to here in the sense that what is promised is so extraordinary and so counter the norm. So that passage really strikes me in, in that way. It highlights um, that aspect of Advent too. Yes, the peaceable, the peaceable kingdom to yeah. come. Yeah, and even a little child, someone vulnerable mm. of no status with no wisdom, the things that are, we'll talk about in a minute up at the, the beginning of the verse, might lead them, you know. Mm. So a shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse. So there's going to be a removal of corruption um, in this new world and um, there's a real obvious focus on the continuing the royal Davidic dynasty. Are yes. there other, other aspects to this first part of the reading that you would want to highlight? Well, the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse is a very powerful image and I think, you know, in our experience of bushfire for example where we see whole forests reduced to ashes mm. and yet 
that little sight of a green leaf that shoots up from the ashes, the incredible capacity for plants to survive destruction or even just in regular gardening. You know, I recently had an olive tree accidentally almost um, completely cut down. I said to my gardener, no, no, I don't want that one to go. He said, oh, well, it's trimmed now. So I had like a half an olive tree. But, you know, in time little shoots will come yeah. from that olive tree and it will begin to bud again and live again. So the stump of Jesse, of course, is a reference to the Davidic line. So there's a messianic promise here um, where Jesse is the father of David. And this is but, but it's a powerful image, bringing forth with new life. And mm. Advent is a time of preparation for something new mm. and a call for us to be ready to be immersed into that new mm reign of God as it comes toward us. But the other interesting thing about this passage is the the reference to the Spirit resting upon this one that will come from the line of David. And, of course, this is something that Jesus makes very explicit in regard to himself, that he has come as the one who will announce this new age of the Spirit, mm. and the Spirit will rest upon him. And, but the things that are specifically mentioned here, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, Knowledge, fear of the Lord. Interestingly, these are incorporated into the Catholic rite of confirmation. So when the bishop lays hands on the confirmant, there's an explicit invoking of these qualities, these gifts and graces, wisdom, understanding, counsel, and so on. So that's an interesting way of the way that the church has appropriated this particular biblical text in a liturgical way to show that, yes, Jesus is the one who can be seen as the stump of Jesse, but each of us incorporated into Christ, also share in that same spirit and those same qualities can be exhibited in our own lives um, through the through the power of the spirit. And again, that brings up the um, the image of creation where the, the spirit does blow on creation as well and um, links with the, um, the creation animal passage further down. So are there any last things to be said about this one before we move on to Matthew? I think we're ready to move on there to Matthew. The next reading then will be Matthew 3, verses uh, 1 to 12. So the Gospel of Matthew, written for Jews um, who had become Christian, helping them to understand the difference between their former and now their new faith. Um, And so we know that Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and fills out all the Davidic titles. So we have that in mind when we come to this passage, this strange figure we encounter, uh, John the Baptist, appearing in the wilderness um, of Judea, proclaiming a harsh message that we don't tend to proclaim in our pulpits, or if we do, we certainly don't do it as harshly as John the Baptist. I've been um, reading Fleming Rutledge's book on Advent, and it's a pulls no punches, as you might expect uh, from Fleming Rutledge, but she really wants to counter the sort of saccharine approach to Advent, which is bringing in the Christmas stuff way too early. So she's quite Puritan, puritanical, one might say, about not bringing out the Christmas decorations till Christmas Eve. Um, and she also um, talks about the medieval church's um, weeks of Advent, which were titled not Peace, Love, Joy and Hope, but um, Death, Hell, Judgment and <laughs> something else. I forget the fourth one. 
But in particular, she talks about the location of John the Baptist being uh, so vital uh, because he is between the old world of evil and suffering and um, is pointing towards the new, which we've obviously been talking about with in the in reference to the Isaiah passage. But he is a, he's a strange figure who carries a whole lot of illusion, as we see from his clothing, um, of prophets who are well known and a couple in particular. So, what what do you think uh, stands out for the preacher from for this passage? Yeah, well, I think. You mentioned earlier how John's message of repentance is sometimes difficult for us to get across because we don't like to call people to repentance. We're a much more affirming culture. We like to be positive and affirming rather Mm. than upsetting people too much with a finger-pointing message uh, of repentance. But, of course, repentance is something that is preparatory towards something else. Repentance is a form of preparation And there is this sub-theme within Advent of repentance. We usually think of Lent as the season of repentance, Mm. and of course that's perfectly true. But there is this sub-theme within Advent as well, Um, and Fleming Rattledge is picking up on that, that it is a time of preparation for the reign of God and the incoming of that new way of being. We need to be ready for that. We need to prepare ourselves for that. And for John, the way to prepare, the way to be immersed into that coming world is to be literally immersed in water, or at least Mm. to be baptised. Some translations refer to John as John the Baptizer, which is kind of interesting because, you know, he wasn't a Baptist, right? (laughs) John the Baptist, we think of a sort of denominational label. Jesus was a Nazarene, but not a member of the Church of the Nazarene. The John the Baptizer was the one who immersed, immersed people Mm. in preparation for a kingdom that was coming. But he was very pointed about it. Um, calling people to change their behaviour, not just to change the way they felt about something. But I think there's a communal aspect as well. Um, Mm. It's not just calling individuals to repent, but there's a new community forming here as people begin to become followers of John. And as we read on later in the book of Acts... Um, you know, we've, we encounter those who followed John but had not heard of Jesus. Mm. And so the early Jesus community... Um, actually, at least to some extent, emerged out of this uh, John Johannine community, John the Baptist community. Um, So it's about a new group of people coming together in a communal way to prepare for the coming reign of God. Yeah, Fleming talks about a drama of fulfilment that John the Baptist sort of stars in at this point. Um, His purpose is to announce, essentially, she says, the beginning of the end. Well, that's interesting because in Acts... Um, 122, there's a description of, um, it says that the disciples were following Jesus beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Christ was taken up. So there's a kind of interesting framing Mm. there that the gospel narrative, the drama of Christ's appearance, begins with the baptism of John and culminates Mm. with the ascension. So John the Baptist at the very end of the Old Testament uh, is prophesied by Malachi um, to, that um, his, the coming of the Lord will lift the curse on the world. And um, so he is, it's interesting in Advent too, we encounter him um, at the heart of the season. Key to Advent is listening to this hard message. And he comes um, clothed rather bizarrely 
And uh, Ched Myers has done some work, obviously, with reference to the Gospel of Mark, but, you know, pertains mm. here, um, that he's dressed with a belt um, that is word for word what Elijah wore in, a, in the book of Zechariah. Uh, the hairy mantle is what prophets tended to wear, less sort of um, stark perhaps. Uh, but the food is very interesting. He eats locusts and wild honey, which, yeah, just very strange to modern ears, perhaps not so strange to, to pre-modern ones. But that the, Ched Myers suggests that the locusts refer to the book of Joel where locusts were a plague of judgment and here comes this figure foreshadowing the new who consumes the locust uh, in readiness um, for the renewal. So it's not about destruction, it's about renewal and that the honey pertains to the rock that Moses hit and the land flowing with milk and honey. So there's tremendous hope. That's actually very powerful, liberating hope in amongst this strangeness. Yeah, that's the flip side of repentance, isn't it? That yeah. It's, it's connected into forgiveness. In fact, when Luke describes the beginning of John's ministry, he, he says that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Those words aren't used by Matthew, but Luke adds that, for the forgiveness mm. of sins. And it's interesting how often Christians seem to forget this, that the gospel is actually good news because it's about forgiveness. And there's actually no good news in a message of repentance that doesn't involve forgiveness. Yeah, interesting, because Sally Douglas were, and I just recorded a um a podcast on Christ the King and Matthew does articulate what salvation is in that in that week of the lectionary as forgiveness of sins mm. and uh, or knowledge of forgiveness of sins actually. So we pointed out um, the salvation is objective that you are forgiven. The knowledge of it is just you learning what is true, right? Not yeah. that you have to achieve it That's yourself. Right. Yeah, and to miss this is really tragic. It, you may have seen the 1996 film Sling Blade. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton directed a film about an intellectually disabled man who murdered his mother's lover when he caught them in the act. And then he went to prison, but mm-hmm. he read the scriptures and there's a line in the film where he said, i done read and understood most of it, but there's some bits I can't quite figure. And what he read in the Bible was that um, sin was punishable by death, the wages of sin is death, that thou shalt not murder was one of the commandments. He knew he had broken the commandment. Uh, He was even baptised as a way of trying to expunge Mm. his guilt. Mm. Um, But he never came to the forgiveness parts Mm. of the Bible. He only understood the message of condemnation for sin. And so in the end, in the narrative of the film, he goes to kill again. Mm. And it's so it's such a tragedy because mm. here is a man engaging with the Scriptures, but the parts of the Bible that would have helped him most, uh, he's missing. He's missing. And with, yeah. tragic, with tragic yeah, results. Yeah. And I sometimes think we do the same. We preach repentance, but <clears> without <throat> the understanding that it's... We could think of repentance as a kind of almost yogic practice mm. in preparation for a cleansing mm result mm. of forgiveness and renewal and restoration. I think there's a bigger question here too about when we're preaching into the modern world, post-modern world and the wider culture, um, 
what even repentance is, why is it necessary? Like there's all these prior questions now that John the Baptist represents that our culture doesn't even ask and so it's a real um, task in preaching to try to get a hook for that and to try to articulate this is why this is this person came to answer a question what was it um, Jesus was part of the answer <laughs> but you know mm. repentance and why might we do that and I'm interested in the next line verse 5 the people of Jerusalem and all Judea everyone went to hear this harsh well We've just talked about how it contains forgiveness, but everyone went to hear this strange and perhaps somewhat odd and threatening person talk about such a hard thing. You know, um, you might not expect that. No. And he uh, he calls them, you brood of vipers. (laughs) What not to do with your... Yes. Uh. But then he's naming that truth that Fleming Rutledge wants to say, which is that... um, Christianity is only faithful and credible when it takes absolutely seriously the suffering and the evil and the injustice and the oppression all around. And um, that's what this week of texts asks us to take seriously. Mm. Mm. The other aspect of John's preaching is that he points to Christ. He points away from himself. I baptise with water. One is coming, is greater than I, more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So people often draw a contrast here between an outward baptism with water and an inward baptism of the Spirit. Um, I guess there's some value in that. Um, And some people see here a sort of a proof text for a baptism of the spirit subsequent to conversion. Okay, you've been you've had your sins forgiven, mm. but you need a baptism of spirit, a baptism of fire as a kind of a second work of grace. But the the baptism of fire being referred to here seems to be something to do with judgment mm. um, as a purifying act. The winning God's winnowing fork is in God's hand. Um, or perhaps it's a reference to Christ himself, clearing his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the granary, burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. So I'm not so sure it really has much to do with baptism or second works of grace. A baptism of fire, and we use this in colloquial speech, don't we? We mm. say, oh, that she went through her baptism of fire. Some kind of stressful even experience of suffering that prepared them for something, a kind of a purifying act that was unpleasant, <laughs> mm. but that had a renewing sort of outcome. Um, so I think this is interesting too that the baptism of fire spoken of here suggests that you know repentance does involve pain, but its result is a purification that leads to new life and renewal. And that, and that theme of judgment is is a, an important one to focus on in Advent in particular, and its association biblically generally is with righteousness, so with mercy, the mercy of God, and judgment um, generally involves um, the righting of oppression or the freeing the freeing of the righteous, those who are oppressed, um, and it does involve culling out the oppressor. And liberating them as well. Yes. But it's that both and it's that whole gospel thing of keeping two apparently contradictory ideas in in your mind at once. Yes. Informing one another. 
Uh, Will Willimon, just a couple of remarks to close perhaps this passage, but Will Willimon does some work on this and and talks about um, perhaps preaching on preaching itself Mm. with this passage. So um, looking at John's sermon, the fact that everyone went and, and so on, and he also talks about how Christianity is an auditory faith, like we don't come to it on our own, we have to be have it preached to us, and it is an art and a skill to learn to listen, to listen to a sermon and the peculiar arcane nature of the communication. And this is the this is the this is what God gives us still um, to learn and to to grow and to transform and to repent and mm. turn around. Mm. Let's move on to um, Romans fifteen four to thirteen. So this is part of a wider conversation Paul's having, isn't it, about those who are weak in faith, and he's trying to um, prevent the Romans from Roman Church from using those kind of categories of one another. Uh, and interestingly, perhaps linking with those comments I just made about um, preaching about preaching. <laughs> with reference to Matthew 3, this passage also underlines um, the written instruction that's in the scriptures, the encouragement of the scriptures where we have hope um, and where we have the tradition and the witness of those who've gone before us. Yeah, that's right. And it opens with Paul's declaration that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and encouragement, of the scriptures, we can have hope in the present. So this is interesting because one of the first decisions that the earliest Christians had to make was, are the Hebrew scriptures Christian scripture? And this is one of the first Mm. theological decisions to be made. Mm. Do we read the Hebrew scriptures as though they belong to us? And, you know, we started with Isaiah and the stump of Jesse, Mm. which obviously in its first instance had to do with the 8th century context in which Isaiah was writing and the period of the divided kingdom and so on. We can't take that away from the history of Israel. That text belongs to Mm -hmm. Israel and has a particular meaning and significance for them. But the church has always taken those scriptures and read them as in a Christian way. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here, uh, where you know he he has an explicit reference to that Isaiah passage, uh, referencing the stump of Jesse and so on, in the context of helping the Christians at Rome to live in peace with each other. Um, and so, so yeah, the, this idea that the... And it's a fine balancing act. You, we don't want to get involved in appropriation. No, we say, oh, this, this Bible belongs to us. No, it belongs to the Jewish people. And we would not be who we are without the Jewish People. Exactly, and, and this is part of Paul's major, a major part of Paul's argument within Romans. You know, you Jews can't speak to the Gentile down to the Gentiles as if they don't belong, and you Gentiles can't speak to the Jews as if they don't belong, as if they're passe. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. I mean, I'm I'm very interested by in, um, Scripture interpreting itself, and you see it so. I mean, it's all through, and you have to go and look unless unless you're a biblical scholar, which many of you are out there. We so many of the allusions are lost on us, but certainly in this passage today, you know, he's 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 appropriated them with respect to widening the community to the Gentiles. But you've got Samuel and Deuteronomy and Psalms 117 as well. Praise the Lord, you Gentiles! Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people! And he's taken those passages as um, 
permission or as pointing to this radical universalizing of God's promise. Yes, and I think verse 13 works very well as a benediction liturgically. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a very Advent-like way to finish a service, isn't it? And also perhaps a podcast episode. (laughs) Amen, Glenn, and thank, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Fran. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.